Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The philosophy of sex. Welcome to the philosophy of sex. I'm your host, Caroline Moreau Hammond. In September 2021, the International Organization for Standards, or ISO, published its first design and safety requirements for sex toys after a two year project. The ISO project was kicked off by today's guest, Swedish surgeon Dr. Martin Dahlberg, who realised he was increasingly performing operations to remove sex toys lodged in people's rectums. Martin is a surgeon at one of the largest hospitals in Stockholm, Sweden. He got his medical degree back in 2011 and has performed several hundred surgical procedures throughout his career. Sprinkled amongst them are those that involve the removal of rectal foreign bodies. That is to say, Dahlberg has surgically freed a number of objects from a number of butts over the years. At times, he's even found himself in the position of operating on the same patient twice. Dahlberg began comparing notes with his colleagues, and in January of 2019, they put together an academic study concerning the prevalence of retained sex toys among the Swedish population. They found that the number of incidences was on the rise, particularly among men. The weird world of anal misadventures can be vast and unforgiving. Things go up and they don't always come out. And sometimes lost items take stranger forms than others. After reviewing a number of cases performed at his hospital, he found that the rectal insertion of vaginal toys was the most commonly associated reason for major surgery being needed. While people getting sex toys and a wild plethora of other things stuck in their butt has objective comical value, a rise in the issue raises interesting questions around education and regulation that ensures people's safety. Following the study, Dahlberg contacted the Swedish Standards Institute, a non-profit association that assists in developing standards across various industries. The aim was to add sex toys to the agenda. Following the project, the standards have now been released. And to comply with the new ISO standards, manufacturers of sex toys must use body-safe material in the event of contact with the genital and anal areas, use a design to minimise the risk of injury during reasonable and predictable use, and provide sufficient information to ensure people's safety. However, what effect do these standards really have? And do sex toy companies even take the standards seriously? A statement from Love Honey Group, the parent company behind WeVibe and one of the other manufacturers that helped develop the safety standards, says it's up to each country's regulators to enact laws to make the standards mandatory. So who should be responsible for ensuring the safety of consumers' bodies? Governments? Retailers? Or should it be customers who are responsible for their own research? In this episode, Martin and I talk about Anatomy 101 of when a sex toy gets lodged in a person's body. I ask Martin about his observations about sex toy use and what motivated him to proactively place more responsibility on sex toy companies and whether the new standards provide enough protection to be useful. Please enjoy my conversation with Martin. The most logical place to start for me is for you to talk us through what actually happens when a person retains a sex toy in their body. I don't think many people have a full understanding of what that can actually do and what that can actually create. So yeah, if you could talk us through what can happen. That was a bit challenging, actually, explaining and sort of cataloging and building a, a sort of model for what could happen with sex toys. But the... Uh, sort of most common story that we hear in the emergency department when the patient presents is that they used a toy and they lost the grip of the toy and it 
went into the anus and they can't retrieve it. Usually the, the patient or the person before they are a patient, the person tries to retrieve it using fingers or uh, trying to push it out, but sometimes that's unsuccessful. That depends a bit on what kind of foreign body, what kind of sex toy it is. But if you retain uh, a foreign body, there are some basic types of injuries that you can sustain. A very small sex toy, like a vibrating egg or bead or something like that would probably pass like stool. So you won't retain it for very long and it usually doesn't pose a, a health hazard. But something that's larger can put some pressure on the intestinal wall. And what that usually leads to is in hours or days, it will cause the tissue to become devitalized and even to die and go into necrosis, which causes a perforation. And that can be a life-threatening medical situation and usually requires surgery and urgent surgery at that. It's not very common to have that situation, but uh, but it's something that I've seen and something that many of my colleagues have seen. Mm. And I want to get into talking a bit about how common that is soon. Mm -hmm. But before we do that, I mean, what type of sort of procedure would be required to remove the object if it did cause a perforation? From letting the patient uh, pass it in the emergency department, from using an educated finger to dislodge the, the object and trying to mm. grip it. And that sometimes sort of seems like a, a well, why did you come here if it's so easy to remove mm. using a, an educated finger? Well, sometimes we need to inspect the, the anus or the rectum afterwards to see that there's no sustained damage, that there is no perforation or bleeding or any problems like that. Um, sometimes it requires going to the operating theater with some local or general anesthesia uh, using a, an array of different techniques to remove the objects. If you, if you look in the literature and you ask around, you hear these stories about the, the deliveries they've been through. Um, I personally use the, the Kiwi suction uh, bell suction device, which is a ventus that you use for deliveries to, to get a grip on uh, large objects. It causes a, a substantial vacuum and you can sort of get a grip on the object and then pull it out. Different other delivery medical tools you'd use like forceps, other tools that sometimes are used are different catheters or tubes that are inserted next to the object up into the rectum and that can sometimes decrease the vacuum above the object so that it's easier to pull out and sometimes these catheters have balloons that can be inflated above the object which can act as an anchor to pull the object out but when this is not successful then, and the object is lost and, and has lodged higher up in the intestine, sometimes you need to go to what we call a laparotomy. When you make an incision in the, in the belly and you either make a hole in the intestine to remove the object and you sew that back up, or with access from the abdomen, you can sort of milk the object through the intestine and back out through the anus hmm. and sometimes the the delivery itself is quite uneventful even though it can be arduous and, and a, a sweaty procedure for this performing surgeon but sometimes the the damage that is sustained if you if you have a perforation or if there's a lot of bleeding then that can be sort of the, the problem that the, that the patient has to live with hmm. Sometimes that means that to, to heal, there's an infection, uh, risk of infection, risk of perforation, and you need a stoma so that bowel contents are not uh, leaking through the hole in the, in the gut into the pelvis or into the abdomen, and that it's instead, instead um, drained into a bag that you have on the abdomen. And mm. That's usually a situation that you have for well, between three and six months before you can return the intestine to the abdomen, which is mm -hmm. another surgery. Hmm. 
So obviously none of those options sound particularly ideal. No. (laughs) (laughs) And sort of get progressively worse as you go. Tell us the story about how you started to notice that this was becoming more of an issue. It was an issue. When did you start to notice that this was a problem and what happened after that? At the hospital where um, I did my residency training, which is a five-year specialization in general surgery that I did, it's a busy urban center, which is an catchment area of about, or in catchment, uh, it serves about 600,000 Stockholmers. We see about once a month or so uh, cases like this. And as I started residency training and you, you're on call, you need to take care of these patients. And that is sometimes very sort of, from our perspective, pretty banal. You go to the emergency department to maybe help the emergency doctors to, to dislodge the object. And sometimes it's um, a full-blown sepsis, abdominal sepsis, and you take the patient to the in- intensive care unit and the, the changes in, in the incidence of retaining sex, sex object is small enough that any, any one surgeon probably won't notice that. Uh, you need to look in the, in the data, in the data sets that are available for the, basically the whole of Stockholm or the whole of Sweden in, in our case, uh, which is what we did later on. But we, me and my colleagues were sort of frustrated with the situation that we kept seeing the these uh, objects and and it feels so unnecessary not everything is sex toys uh, with the retained foreign bodies that we looked at in our study we uh, where we studied patients coming with a, a foreign body in the anus or rectum between 2009 and 2017 there were about 40% 41% there were sex toys and other stuff was eatables and glass bulbs and bottles and stuff like that. But the, the sex toys were at least some kind of, they're pretty common and, and they're sort of intended for, for this use. And even though they were intended for this use, they, they were, they, they kept getting lost. And that was pretty frustrating. And, you know, we, we're Swedes. We like to regulate stuff and <laughs> make things orderly. And, uh, I mean, we, we, we have safety belts in our cars. And it, it sort of seemed um, interesting that, that, we, that, we were, that the producers of, of these objects were, were not able to, to prevent these sort of obvious things from happening. And in that study, you found an increase, didn't you, in the number of, of incidences within that um, 2009 to 2017 time period, correct? Yeah. Yeah. How yeah. much of an increase was it? If you just look at the, the incidence per 100,000 person years in, in the, at our place, it was, uh, or in Sweden, it was from 1.4 to 2.3, almost a doubling. It was a, a more substantial increase in men mm. than it was in women, uh, but it seemed like there was an increase in women mm. as well. Do you have any any sort of hypothesis for for why there had had been an increase? Sex toys are more popular. Uh, they're more marketed. They're more normalized. They're available everywhere. There hasn't, at least from from our perspective, from my perspective, been a focus on safety at least not in a sort of a systematic way. And, and that was later on when, when we actually contacted or got into contact with the producers of these uh, of, of sex toys. It was obvious that they were sort of frustrated with the situation as well. I didn't study why there was an increase like this. So it's only, it's only speculate, speculation on my part. But I, I, I think that it's uh, it's more popular. It's more it's more in the it's more in the media. It's available everywhere. It's more normalized. E- even though there's less stigma associated with it, there's a lot of stigma going to the emergency department with uh, foreign body that you lost or a sex toy that you uh, that you inserted and you can't retrieve. But but it's, it seems it seems silly because it's it's preventable and it's uh, something that it can cause a lot of harm. So I I was really frustrated with it. 
Yeah. And I think there's sort of that old story of, oh, someone will sort of come in and say that they slipped and, and yeah. fell on it or whatever. Have the reasons people give to you changed at all as the prevalence has kind of increased or do people not really feel that they have to give a justification? What's that sort of dynamic usually like when you're dealing with a patient? Because these cases are, are sort of uh, uncommon, there's not a lot of data for me as I, there's not a lot of stories that I've gotten from patients, but the, the cases from the past couple of years, those patients haven't felt the need to present a reason why this happened. It's just, well, it's obvious why this happened. And sometimes uh, people insert stuff for self-harm reasons. That, that usually comes with some kind of explanation. But the, the, the past couple of cases that I've done, were, there were not a lot of reasons given. It's obvious that this is a sex toy and I've, and I've lost grip. Mm. And, and they usually yeah. come with some description of what kind of device it is. Obviously, in the study, sort of your conclusion was that policy should sort of be the answer here. Obviously, aside from being Swedish, <laughs> why did you feel that taking a policy um, <laughs> approach was sort of the, the right way to try and tackle this issue? There, I suppose there are different approaches that you can have to um, making an impact or, or changing this. Uh, one, one would be working with lawmakers and or working with manufacturers and try to see if there's a, a way to find regulation. Another would be to sort of talk to the media, make this more publicly available, the information that this can happen and, and stay safe and avoid this. And if it bleeds, please stop or you can approach it in different ways. One of my colleagues was interviewed in one of the local magazines and he, he suggested, well, we should put a stopper on it. We should put a string on it. Uh, and it will be easier for us to remove it. We, we found that there was some regulation of sex toys, uh, and that was uh, sort of shoehorned from the regulation of electric toys or electric uh, goods. And there are some regulations in the materials you can use in products, but there was no system in, in the rules that were Sex toys have been around for a while, and and uh, I I haven't seen any sign that there's a sort of drift towards safer products. Dildos and dongs look the same way if you look in, in catalogs from way back and and from from what you can buy now. Uh, that of course there there's a lot of innovation. I'm not I'm, I'm not saying there isn't, but. I'm not very uh, confident that the, the market will solve this. Uh, it's not common enough. And it's sort of difficult to explain to the customer, I think, that we made the flare of this butt plug large enough so that it won't go up into Uranus. That's not the focus. That's not, that's not what you're selling the product on. But if you can make a whole bundle of regulations, if you can make something that says, that if you can put on your label that this is not only safer so you won't lose grip on it, that, that it will be removable, that it won't break and give you harm, that the electronics are safer, that the, the plastics and or the materials are not toxic. To me, there wasn't just this single problem with people getting sex toys lost into the anus. There was also penis rings made from hardened steel took us like 45 minutes to remove a, a one centimeter penis ring, which was stuck over the penis and scrotum of a guy. And it's supposed to cause some swelling. I suppose that's why you use it. But, but then it swells and you can't get it off. And, and you have to use some kind of machine tool to, to remove it with some water cooling with the, with the risk of injuring the, the penis or the scrotum when you remove it. And, and that's also completely preventable. Why, why do you sell something like this? Why, why can't you cut it with common household tools? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I've spoken to a few different people about this and, mm -hmm. and some people say, well, it's, it's an education issue, but I don't know how realistic it is to 
assert that we should be teaching kids this stuff at school so that they don't go on to do it as adults. How you ed- educate adults is, is always really tricky with stuff like this, sort of more generally across the board to ensure that everyone sort of understands. So to me, it does make more sense that the onus falls with the sex toy manufacturers to sort of not letting things fall in people's hands that are dangerous in, in the first place or potentially dangerous in the first place to use. Mm. But it seems to be a tough one, particularly when it comes to butt toys, because like you say, if it doesn't have the flared base and someone doesn't know, then there will sort of be a, a, a risk of, of it getting lost. What's your sort of thought on on managing this stuff through education of of people versus versus regulation? In the medical profession, I'm I'm doing surgery, so and and that's probably what I should do. The the users of sex toys is not a homogenous group. It's all kinds of people, all kinds of ages. A natural platform to to speak to all of those people. Uh, some people are really interested and are in communities where where it would be do outreach. You you need to be careful how you go about doing that because. One of the obvious problems that, that, that we saw in, in this data was that uh, it's 75% men and all the all the people that we did laparotomies with the, the bigger surgeries on were men. That would be a, a group that we could focus on because they seem to give themselves a, a whole lot more problems that, than the, the women in, in these studies did. What sort of limits the, the effect that the, this could have is that the, many of these risk takers they don't use the sex toys that are sort of updated and i uh, knew they they found boutique stuff that is really really large and, and they probably won't respond to a, a, a standard or or regulation they they will if that happens they will i mean they they will go to the local lathe and and sort of make their own or they they will find some, someone that doesn't care about the rules because they, they have this, well, they, they like large insertions. There is some data that I've found on, on problems in the, uh, of, of incontinence of, of recept, receptive anal sex. Mm. Uh, and, and that's a, also an like extremely tricky area to sort of form any policy or form or educate people about because the, the studies are all retrospective and based on interviews and, and self-reporting is usually not very good in what kinds of sex you had and what kinds of sex you had in when you were in your teens or in your 20s or 30s when you're when you're older and when the problems that, that could arise from sex toy use sort of appear. So, so I think that regulation or at least reaching out to the manufacturers and seeing what 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 do you think? What what, what could we do? Stuff that is intended to go up the butt, could it have a stopper that is large enough that it doesn't? Uh, and stuff that's not meant to go up the butt, we want the manufacturers and the, the retailers and the producers to sort of think about this, and to, to maybe decrease this and maybe sort of bring about a, a different culture of safety, and which I think is possible because the, the stigma of, of sex toys is... Well, if you can talk about it, then it's reasonable to have some kind of open discussion about the safety, safe use of, mm. of these toys. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's true. I mean, you're obviously, as you say, you're always going to have outliers who uh, individuals who sort of want to push their limits to the max and don't really care about the, the risks to their health. And the, I think there's only so much you can do for people like that. But I think for everyone else or people sort of sitting more in and around the center, it does make more sense that you just have safe product <laughs> that's made well and that people don't necessarily have to be self-educating on things that can actually be quite tricky to understand um, with sex toys because there is so much opacity sort of surrounding this this industry and why things are made, the way they're made, how they're made. Yeah. So obviously after you concluded the study, you decided to approach the Swedish Institute for Standards. Yeah. Can you talk about who they are and, and what they do. When we had some of these cases I, I, and we wrote up this, uh, this paper in the study, I, I contacted the Swedish Consumers Protection Agency to see if there was a, a lot of complaints about sex toys. And 
they said we don't have any any systematic observations that there are, there are any any problems with sex toys. So well, we don't have any regulations that we can fall back on. But but please contact the Swedish Standards Institute uh, to see if there's uh, any standards that are ongoing or in development. So I, I wrote an email in February of 2018 to see if there was uh, anything going on. Uh, wrote back and said that well, no, there is no standard for sex toys. Do you want to help create one? I think I said sort of maybe, uh, what, what do you mean? And all of a sudden I was in a meeting with the uh, retailers, producers and importers, manufacturers and uh, in Sweden. My, my sort of objective with this was to discuss with them if there was a, a way to, to have the, the number of patients that present with foreign bodies and that that i need to treat may make them go away please and they had a, a different agenda and and they they wanted a standard for a, a different reason i think and i think that's reasonable as well they i think they see a, a lot of imported stuff that's to them subpar and that's not very high quality and they try to make good stuff and they want some kind of label of quality that they can put on yeah, on their stuff and they're interested in safety and they're interested in they they were obviously interested in, in cooperating to to make something that covers a lot of aspects of sex toys and their packaging and the information that is sent with the sex toys and and the swedish standard standards institute could could help with that they facilitated the, these meetings and while they had some suggestions for how to write up a standard and all of us basically were were new at that the the sort of primitive idea that that we surgeons had that well just put a stopper on it just put a string on it uh, it was we were soon educated that the the way that to write a standard is not that you prescribe exactly what things are supposed to look like they explain that a lot of the a standard is a testing procedure. The, the testing procedure can be a standard. The analogy was with the kids pacifiers. If you have a kids pacifier, the there there's a lot of regulations about kids pacifiers so that they don't choke. There's not a word about exactly how they are supposed to look like, but there's a there's a plastic model of a of the throat of a of a kid. And you're supposed to put your the product to be and in all possible directions and with a stipulated force and try to force it through this plastic tube, which models the the windpipe or the the airway of the of the toddler or the kid. That is the standard. The testing procedure and the dimensions of the tube is the standard. The Standards Institute helped us finding different ways to to formulate what what we would want from a, a safe sex toy. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Mm. Because if the retailers are saying... We want to make sex toys safer for people and we want some way of sort of putting that on our packaging and marketing that to people. Surely a good way of testing that, whether something is safer or not, is noticing if the, the amount of surgeries go down, right? So I don't see those things as necessarily being different objectives. It's almost like one informs the other, right? Yeah. So who who are some of the, the retailers that were involved? 
some are uh, shops in, in Sweden, mm-hmm. some are uh, European uh, or uh, with international manufacturing in, yeah. in China. Yeah. Uh, one of the, so Tekler is one of those. To, to sort of get the, the the timing when when we sort of initiated this, it was in 2018, 2019, we wrote up the draft and, and then uh, COVID hit. I was uh, in the uh, COVID ICU working for for quite a while when the the draft was sort of developed more and I had less time to to work on this and so so some of the 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 industry contacts that that were sort of brought in later on when this was uh, taking shape I I haven't sort of met and and kept updated with but, but the the first people were local Swedish shops and some uh, at least international firms with international reach. Can you tell us about what actually emerged from those standards? What was created and sort of how was that process negotiated in terms of what kind of standard you you did end up deciding to create? We had to sort of catalogue all the possible ways that sex toys could have an impact on the health of, of users. We looked at other standards. There are some standards for, for medical equipment that we looked at for for uh, other assistive devices so you can borrow some of the the problems or the the, the language from from those but what i tried to do and what is maybe my sort of contribution to to that work was to think a bit about what, what kind of injuries that you can sustain from sex toys and we talked a bit about entrapment and and having uh, people lose the grip of, of sex toys and not being able to retrieve them from the anus or the rectum. But also, what, why is that a problem? We talked about perforations and, and bleeding that it can cause. And that was sort of regulated with the ele- ele- electric equipment. Uh, but also things like surface temperature, the, the uh, acute angles and burrs and, and sharp points. We had to think a bit about vibration injury. Uh, there's a lot of regulation in occupation, occupational exposure to vibrations that we looked at. Uh, and some of the magic one type vibrators are extremely uh, powerful. And the, the impact that you have is, is something that will, you, you wouldn't be allowed to work with uh, a vibrator like that mm-hmm. as, a, as a tool. It's uh, it vibrates too much, and uh, if you look at mm-hmm. the impact that it's ha- it has on on nerve endings, you're, and and there are some reports of, of desensitization if you use a vibrator, and and it it will cause nerve damage if you if you use it a lot. A lot of other things about safe use, and if you if you drop something uh, from a reasonable height that you put it on the table and you, and you sort of drop it to the, to the floor, then it's supposed to break in a way that it's obvious to you. So you, so you don't use something that it, it sort of all, all of a sudden it breaks because it had a fall and it breaks in some kind of dangerous way. I, I looked at dimensions of the pelvis, dimensions of the rectum, dimensions of the anus, the angles that are involved and try to sort of make a model for uh, what what different kinds of objects would cause which kind of problem? Try to find dimensions which would cause damage to the sphincters, and and that was a that was a whole uh, pun intended. Uh, that that was a hard time. My Google history is was <laughs> utterly destroyed by that. Uh, trying to find. What what is a, a safe or unsafe dimension to use for a sex toy or an, a butt plug? I looked at some of the data from from surgery where we put a tube in the anus to remove cancers from the from the rectum. Uh, that that tube is four centimeters in diameter, and we know from studies that looked at the the sphincters after that kind of surgery that a lot of those people, 20, 30 percent, had some evidence of damage to the internal sphincter. And then there was this complete uh, disconnect between what I saw when I tried to find what the dimensions of sex toys were. Like 
well, huge insertions up to 10 centimeters. Okay, and that, there's a that's a complete disconnect for me when the when the people who are experts at at uh, the anus and the rectum they say that well anything above three or four centimeters will give you sphincter damage, and you won't be able to do that on an awake patient. And then there's these videos that you see of these guys with ten centimeters, ten centimeter butt plugs, uh, that uh, and and they, they don't seem to be in pain. Uh, they're not doing it uh, to to hurt themselves, I think. But that was the the most uh, uh, frustrating thing that I found that there was extremely little literature, extremely little that we that, that I could sort of describe um, that had on any scientific backing. There weren't even good studies of, of of talking to people about this and see if if they're continent. If you do an insertion of ten centimeters. Can you hold stool? Can you hold uh, liquids? Do you become incontinent? It seems like no one had any idea. If I think about sort of what sex ed- educators sort of commonly say, it, you know, it, it's even what you were saying about the vibrators causing potential nerve desensitization. It, it, there's a common statement that obviously sex educators get asked a lot, will vibrators cause desensitization? And it's obviously something that people are concerned about, but the the usual answer is, no, because we don't want to discourage women from sort of being fearful around desensitizing their clitorises and things like that. But as you say, there are some toys that are incredibly powerful. So you do want people to be aware of things that can actually happen. But as you say, there seems to be so little information on what actually does happen to people's bodies when we use these different toys and devices. That is an, an unfortunate thing that it's obviously not really seen as something worthy of study or it's not something that people have kind of thought about it's interesting <laughs> yeah I, I think that's a good a good summary also the and a good call to action for for sort of the, the cooperation between sociologists or, or anthropologists even going into subcultures where well huge insertions and to see okay what kind of what kind of problems do these people have uh, down the line and that's something that I've, I've struggled to find any good information on. What happens in the long run? I think that people who use uh, butt plugs uh, don't immediately become incontinent. That would be unreasonable uh, because they, they keep un- probably keep using it. And, and there's not a lot of, uh, there's not an endemic uh, incontinence problem. Mm. But if we have evidence that says that okay, if we if we do this uh, operation with a tube that is four centimeters, and a lot of butt plugs are larger than four centimeters, and and we know that many of these people get uh, internal sphincter uh, damage, maybe they can compensate now when they're twenty or thirty or forty or fifty. But if they had a trajectory where they would eventually become incontinent at ninety. Maybe that's 70 now instead, because they've lost some muscle fibers in the, in the sphincter. Or maybe it's 60. Uh, and when you're 20 or 30, you might not care. But we, it's something that, that it would be really interesting to, to see if, there's a, if you could think up a study where you could look historically at receptive anal sex or, or uh, use of sex toys. And the... Uh, the occurrence of, of fecal incontinence. Because I, I think that the, this is something that we, it's obviously difficult to, to study this systematically, uh, but it's also something that people will feel is normal. It's normal to use butt plugs. And that's sort of part of the where we started as well, that, that it's popular, it's not stigmatized. You can find them everywhere. We don't know what happens in the long run. Of course, we shouldn't try to regulate everything. That, that's not my point. We shouldn't try to sort of enforce. I mean, how do you even enforce something like that? But it would be, it would be really good to know what is a safe diameter. Before we do that, we, we have to sort of, at least from, from the medical community, be sort of cautious and say that we don't know what happens if you systematically use butt plugs that are large. Desensitization issue with vibrators. I, 
I, I understand the, the the drive to say no, that it doesn't cause desensitization. But there's some studies that, that show that it, it probably does. But small nerve endings grow back if they're left for for a while. So if you don't overdo it, it's probably reasonably safe to do it. But it, it would also sort of be irresponsible to say that it's it's completely uh, without consequence. Mm. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's the thing with any of these things, right? You've got to you've got to leave it up to people to decide for themselves whether they want to to act on something or not. But you do want to be realistic about the impact that something can have. You have to enable people to make informed choices and having sort of ulterior motives for not wanting to tell people to not do something mm. when it potentially does pose a risk. I mean, that as you say, that does seem completely irresponsible to be doing that. Mm. What ended up resulting from this sort of project was an ISO certification. Can you explain what an ISO certification is? I I wish I could. (laughs) (laughs) There's a standard called ISO 3533, which is the result of the the work that we did. And it's uh, it's a standard uh, that is about 15 pages long that that you can buy from the ISO Institute or the the association, uh, which is in Switzerland. If you... uh, use that standard you're you can be compliant to the to the iso standard and you can say that you're compliant to the iso standard mm-hmm. the the standard summarizes all of the stuff that that we've been talking about now the the different aspects of packaging information the physical attributes of sex toys and uh, it has an appendix that is more oriented towards what kind of damage that you can cause with sex toys and and how to possibly prevent it to me, it's a it's a start. I, I don't. There's bound to be some revision, but but it's it's been through the international community uh, of standards institutes in, around the world, and and they've accepted this as a as a standard for sex toys, and that, it, that there's a bunch of of really interesting information security information practices that 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 we could have included in this standard in retrospect but the focus was was mainly on the the sort of physical harm from sex toys but but in retrospect it's obvious that it that it should be included how information is used how how sex toys that are connected uh, through the internet can be made safer for those who use it to to prevent damaging information from from leaking from sex toys it's not in the scope of, of what we did, but but something that we should have updated with or, or they should be amended, I think. Yeah, because the the, the certification covers, uh, to my understanding, it's um, the materials and the design of the product, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And so what do some of the standards actually stipulate? Where did you actually get to on what needed to be sort of regulated? There's a uh, an important chapter on the risk analysis. It goes through the uh, the criteria for risk analysis, which are physical hazards, the shape of the product, the external or internal use of the product, removable parts, biocompatibility, biological, microbiological evaluation of the product, the use and mis- potential misuse of, of uh, the object, how components degrade from time, use, and the environmental impact of objects, how user information should be designed with a focus on the risk analysis, the transportation and storage of devices, uh, risk mitigation through design, the production and process control, user information, risk mitigation through including labeling and instructions for use, uh, some post-market control and instructions for that, and then design requirements, which goes through basically the the sort of different risk factors that I, that we discussed just recently and then there's uh, so, some uh, appendices which go through the risk evaluation and uh, a checklist for potential hazards phases and steps of how to risk assess uh, sex toy mm-hmm. 
Uh, and then there's the the appendix that I was involved in writing, which is more of a, a anatomy and physiology based uh, background for yeah. for improving sex products. How would those standards be enforced? Well, I'm a, a bear of little brain. I'm a surgeon. I have a strong back, and <laughs> I, it's if you talk to the the standards institute people they they will they will give you a good answer uh, i'm not sure that mm. uh, anna Sjögren, who i contacted is uh, uh, still in this project but but she's uh, she's a good person to to uh, talk to she, she she's really mm. she's been really helpful through all of this and and if it weren't for her this would have gotten nowhere yeah because i mean my understanding is that there's sort of very little way that this can kind of be enforced but it does seem that for example i know love honey have certification for their factory and a, a bunch of companies now do what that actually means in terms of how their plant testing sort of plays out and things like that i'm i'm it's very hard to get insight on those things yeah. <laughs> but circling back to sort of where we began i guess have you noticed a decrease in the number of surgeries that you've had to perform since the ISO standards have been implemented if the hypothesis that one will beget the other stacks up uh, I, I wish I could say that but uh, I, I, I'm afraid I have to give the boring answer is that I, I don't know and and yeah. I, I don't even think that we could know because the cases are relatively rare and and small fluctuations happen all the time uh, so so I, I don't think that there's uh, the the impact is probably uh, limited also because the in foreign bodies that was only 40 percent of the foreign bodies so so the of course other yeah. other stuff as well and that means that it's only about four or five per year at our reasonably large hospital uh, so so it would be very difficult to sort of see the uh, from a, from day to day to see the increase or decrease in, in the incidence of that I, I have very modest expectations of, of what will what this will achieve in the in the short run. I, I think there's hope, and I was surprised that the the companies were so uh, so eager to to uh, be part of this. I didn't expect them to be regulating themselves like this because I couldn't find any evidence of them doing it before this work started. Mm. But it, it felt like there was a, a tipping point that, that they. Uh, a lot of the different manufacturers actually sort of uh, had so eye to eye and and had similar objectives, similar incentives to in in Sweden at least. To but we we want to be able to to say that this is a good product. The project as ISO standard took a bit different direction that that I would have guessed writing that email to to Anna at, uh, at SIS or SSI. Yeah, well, I mean, you were you were tapping into a, a huge and very messy industry, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Potentially unwittingly. But that's good. It's good to hear that, that retailers do want to work together more to, to improve the standards. That, that makes you hopeful. And also, of course, uh, there is some bias in in the selection of i mean i only of course discussed yeah. with the with the manufacturers who were who were there yeah there would be plenty that would not yeah be particularly interested in any of this yeah it was a an interesting sort of outreach project at least to to, to go from the from the surgical uh, operating theater to talking about yeah. this stuff well, and, and that's exactly it. I think the more we can get sort of cross-pollination between different professions and industries and areas that have an insight into how these tools and devices are being used and sort of respond to that, I mean, that's never a bad thing. <laughs> no, and the, uh, obviously, as we as we talked, there, there is a, a bunch of interesting cross-sectional research that could be done from uh, how how people, well, the sexual practices of, of of people how yeah. that relates to the uh, sex toy use and how it relates to possible medical problems in the in the long run mm. and also i think how people are educating about these things 
because we want to live in a world that's sex positive and, and sexually open and, and these sorts of things, part of me does wonder if sometime that does end up creating a bit of a, a disregard for safety and reality of the capacity of the body. Yeah, I hope that this this drive to to regulate stuff isn't perceived as a as a way to to clamp down on mm. sex toy use because it's it's really not uh, the, yeah it's something that use some caution uh if it mm. leads stop if it hurts stop uh that at least if you if you want to stay out of the emergency department or if you if you don't want surgery i i realize that it's not up to me to to sort of decide how people use sex toys and and i it's uh, also i i see the the sort of downside to it and the, the, that's my bias i i see the problems that it brings but but i don't see that all the good stuff the 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 alternative cost of not having sex toys could be much worse i i don't know and and as i say that it seems pretty reasonable that it probably is a, a big alternative cost if you if you would outlaw or ban sex toys i'm not at all trying to disencourage people from using sex toys it's just that a lot of the stuff is unknown and, and uh, we should yeah treat the body with some respect yeah i like that as a uh, a note to end on respect your body be cautious <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening to the philosophy of sex and thanks to my guest martin dahlberg Head to the show notes for more information about where you can find out about the study and Martin's work. I'm Caroline Moreau-Hammond. Thanks to Zoltan Fitchow, who edited the episode and wrote the music. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review or email us at info at becoming.me. And don't forget to subscribe if you don't want to miss any new episodes. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> <laughs> 